Welcome to Grow It Minnesota, the podcast about growing fruit, vegetables, flowers, and anything else in a cold, cold climate. I'm Mary Shear, a home gardener and author of the book, The Northern Gardener from Apples to Zinnias. On this program, we talk to some of the best gardeners in the Midwest so you can grow a more productive, beautiful garden no matter the weather. Let's get on to today's guest. Well, today my guest is Mike Hager, and he is the man who actually wrote the book on growing perennials in cold climates. He's one of the authors of Growing Perennials in Cold Climates, which has been out for a number of years. I think it's in its second edition um, with uh, John Whitman and Debbie Lonnie. And for many years, Mike was the owner of Ambergate Gardens, a uh, perennial and other plant nursery just to the west of the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum. And most recently, he's the past president of the Minnesota State Horticultural Society. So needless to say, this is a guy who is totally linked into gardening and plants in cold climates. And we're going to talk today about summer bulbs, mostly, and a little bit about spring bulbs. But Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, let's just start out with the botanical basics. What is a bulb? Well, that term bulb we use really very, very loosely. Um, and r- frankly, it's applied to virtually any plant that uh, has a swollen or thickened basal portion. Uh, in most cases, this is actually stem tissue that we're talking about here. And uh, so we call a lot of things bulbs uh, that technically are other things. So, for example, we have two bulbs, we have corms. We have tubers roots, we have rhizomes. We tend to lump those all together and call, for simplicity's sake, just call them all bulbs. What they really all share in common, even though only probably about half of them are true bulbs, what they share in common is that they have the ability to store food uh, for the plant for long term. And if you look at where most bulb type structures, which we also call them geophytes, where most of those have evolved in nature are situations with extremely harsh climates, where the summers are extremely hot, oppressive, dry. Uh, plants have evolved to survive those conditions by going dormant during those periods of time, and that food storage mechanism is what gets them through from one season to the next. So, um, you know, for our purposes today, I don't know that we really need to want to get into the what really defines one from the other, because we could spend quite a bit of time on that. But basically, it is important to understand that some of the structures that we do call bulbs technically are really not true bulbs. And the bulbs themselves, they're, they're a food storage mechanism. They're not roots, for example. Like I think no. some people think, well, that's their root. Right. Well, not right. really. That, that's, that's very correct. A lot of people say that. And as I said, these are really stem tissue. And the roots emerge from the basal portion of that structure, typically from the basal portion of that structure, whether it's a true bulb, whether it's a corm or what have. You. So root tissue, and these are two different types of tissue, it's stem tissue versus root tissue. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's important to understand because it affects how you how you handle these plants and how you plant them and all those kinds of things. And so and in our climate, we have kind of two types of bulbs. We have spring blooming bulbs, which when this goes up, will be, hopefully we'll see some daffodils and a few other things going. And then we have summer bulbs. Right. And so... What are the differences between the spring and the summer bulbs? 
Well, uh, yeah, I, I, as we speak here today, it was what, March 29th or 30th, whatever. I probably have 12 different bulbs blooming in my garden right now as spring flowering bulbs. And so it's just, we're probably running 10 to 14 days ahead of normal here right now. But so, so this is unusual. But basically with, with spring flowering bulbs, these are bulbs that need to be planted in the fall of the year, go through the cold period, and then come spring, emerge and flower and Ultimately, most of them go dormant for the for that summer months, as I alluded to earlier. Um, summer flowering bulbs can, you know, many of these that we're going to talk about here today, most of these we're going to talk about today are not winter hardy out of doors here in Minnesota. So we grow them for summer bloom effect or in some cases even summer foliage effect. But we either have to dig them, store them inside, or deal with them some way because we leave most of them things like gladiolas and callas and some of those things outdoors for the winter. They're going to be dead as a doornail that come spring of next year with that climate. So we look to the to the spring flowering ones for the early part of the season. We look to the summer ones to give us some bloom in the summer months when the spring flowering ones have already gone dormant and are no longer with us. So the, the so let's just briefly on the spring flowering bulbs. And you have a great video that I'm going to link in the show notes for people. To to watch about spring flowering bulbs. Um, but in terms of, you know, our climate and the kinds of critters and stuff we have, I know there's one bulb that is kind of the best one for people to plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the daffodil, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then that's because the da- daffodil bulbs contain a, uh, a contain a, a really a, a rather unpalatable substance as part of their makeup that that uh, you know the rodents and stuff are smart enough to know what's good to feed on and what's not good to feed on, and they know they they know that daffodil bulbs are, are typically left alone. This is true for a couple of other things as well, but daffodils would be the primary one. And in terms of spring flowering bulbs, if I had to pick one bulb to grow and only could grow one spring flowering bulb, it would hands down be daffodils because they're the most permanent, long lived bulb that we a spring flowering bulb that we can have in our landscapes. And and a lot of people have had disappointment with tulips, which are beautiful, but they just the critters go after them. Yeah, something uh, they're 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 deer food. Period. <laughs> you know, they <laughs> the deer love to feed on them at this time of year. The uh, you know the shrews and the mice and 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 uh, gophers and things love to feed on the bulbs. Um, and honestly, in terms of spring flowering bulbs, tulips as beautiful as they are and the array of color that they offer, um, they're wonderful to have. But they're not among the most permanent, long-lived bulbs in the landscape. You know, they and and that all comes back to that situation I've talked about earlier. That they, the parents that were used, the parent species that were used in breeding modern tulip hybrids, are all from extremely difficult summer uh, areas of the world, and uh, they are extremely dry during their dormant season. And we put them into our landscapes with highly amended soils, high organic contents. We water. That's doing everything the opposite of what that plant wants. Consequently, they end up to be fairly short-term plants for us. But, you know, you can buy them so cheap, so get two, three years out of them and then replant, put new ones in. Gives you a chance to change colors and stuff as well. So, um, but that's important for people to understand that that's how that particular one behaves. Yeah, and I know a lot of people actually almost treat them like annuals. Yeah, you know, I've gotten to the point where I, I love tulips, but I only grow them as a container plant. Um, I mean, I force, you know, 50, 75 pots every year and hold them in my garage for the winter. They're all sitting out in my driveway now. They're coming into uh, into bud. That's the way I approach tulips. I mean, I enjoy going over and seeing the mass display that the Arboretum has every year. Um, but in terms, I, 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 you know, they're 
that's personal gardening philosophy and how you want to deal with it. You can go either way. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about summer bulbs. So what are some of the bulbs that we would consider, you know, using that term loosely, yep. the summer bulbs? Well, I think probably the, the top of the list in for most of us, would probably be lilies. Um, and we, we can talk about that a little bit in terms of they're a little bit different than some of the other summer bulbs we're going to talk about, and we can get into that. But it would be things like lilies, um, tuberous begonias, calla lilies, uh, glads, uh, dahlias, which, of course, are more summer into fall kind of bloom, um, tuberoses, Peruvian daffodils, and the list goes on and on and on. Those would be some of the primary groups. Um, and again, how they're handled and how they're overwintered, it's a little bit different between each one. And it, we can talk about that um, a little bit as we go through this as well, in terms of how you might carry these things through the winter and what their specific conditions for each one might be. Yeah, and let's start with lilies, because those are the ones that can overwinter right. in our climate. So, yeah, they, so- they, uh, they are the summer flowering bulb that, offers us total reliable winter hardiness for us here. And, and of course, lilies are, lilies are an extremely large group of plant. And actually, the, they, they are broken down in, by a classification system that's based primarily on breeding backgrounds, what species from different parts of the world were used in breeding them. So the most dependable lilies for us are what we call Asiatic lilies. And they're called Asiatic lilies because the parent species are all natives to to Asia. And they do offer a wide array of colors, a wide array of forms, uh, heights, all those kind of things. And so if, if you're new to lilies, that's, that's the group to start with. Um, even earlier blooming than most of the Asiatic type lilies are a group that we call LA lilies. Those are crosses between Easter lily and Asiatic lilies, and they tend to bloom even a little bit earlier than many Asiatics. And many of those actually um, are winter fine for us. They're winter hardy for us as well. So we go, we start with the earliest being them. We go to Asiatics, and then some other groups that gardeners might recognize. Uh, a favorite group of mine is a group of lilies called martagons, which are uh, oh. shade tolerant lilies. Most lilies are high light kinds of things. But uh, th- these are lilies that evolved in nature in partially shaded locations. They tend to flower for us and uh, usually peak around the middle of June. Those are followed by uh, trumpet and oriental lilies, which are a little bit later into summer. And uh, of course, orientals are the one that everybody wants just because of the fragrance. Um, they're, however, they're, they're a little bit more challenging to grow. And then the last most important group for us now is a group of lilies that we call orient pets. And those are crosses between the oriental group of lilies and the trumpet type lilies. So they're the latest to flower. Uh, they can be very, very large. Uh, they inherit some traits from both parents. They inherit some of the fragrance from the Orientals. They inherit uh, longevity and permanence in the landscape from some of the trumpets. So those would be the, the major groups. I think that lilies, are, I still, and I will still contend that lilies are, if you can, are best planted in the fall of the year. Um, however, However, they're widely available in this time of year in retail outlets. And the reason for that is that you can actually take uh, lily bulbs and freeze them down at about 28 degrees in, in, and hold them for months and months and months and months on end. So that has allowed the, what t- traditionally was a fall availability to become 
also a spring available because growers will take those, they'll freeze them down for the winter and then make them available this time of year. And it works pretty well with most lilies. The thing I would say, if you're going to, and these lilies, some of these lilies are going to be available on the, on the Hort Society's spring bulb sale. The important thing to remember with those lilies is that they are, when you get them, they're probably going to be starting to sprout. Get them in the ground ASAP. Don't hold them long term. If you do that, you can have really pretty good results with spring planting as well. So, yeah. Right. And in normal years, you know, when the Hort Society has its sale in March at the Home and Garden Show, uh, you know, I bought those, I've bought lilies there. And then the minute I could get them in the ground in early to mid-April, put them in the ground. Right. Because they're fine. Right. And they're actually better there than they are. Yeah you know, sitting in your refrigerator or wherever you're holding them. And I assume, you know, having done that, you had good success with them that way as well. So I think that, again, yeah. it's a big thing to remember. Spring plant, get them in the ground like you did as soon as you can work that soil and get them in, and you should do pretty well with them. Right. And so, lilies, you know, are there any tricks to getting, you know, to the planting part? I mean, you know, you say so mostly they like, except for the martagons, they like the sun. Uh, do you need to amend the soil or do anything special when you're putting them in the ground? Uh, you know that that's the same rule of thumb really for all these bulbous type structures. They uh, the the soil drainage at the base of the bulb is what's crucial, and uh, most of these bulbous type structures like do not like to sit in soils that retain excessive moisture. So if you're lucky enough to, by nature to have one of those sandy loam soils, it's probably not going to be an issue for you. Uh, there may still be some benefits in adding organic to that soil. If you garden on a heavier soil, a more clay type soil, certainly the, the addition of organic matter, incorporation of organic matter is going to help the soil drainage issue. Um, Usually when we run into problems with bulbs, and I'll go back to the tulip thing again, uh, what usually happens with those tulips in your in your border situation in the summer where you've planted annuals over them or what have you, and you're watering to keep the annuals doing great, uh, if too much soil moisture is retained, that, that leads those bulbs to be very susceptible to rots, primarily fusarium rot. And that's what a lot of them die from. And they just simply too much moisture, the base of plate on the bulb starts to rot and goes away. And that's true with lilies, too, in, in a situation where they're poorly drained. But most of these lilies are really tolerant of a pretty wide range of soil types. The, the big exception on lilies that I think is important to keep in mind is orientals. And oriental lilies are evolved from maritime species native primarily in Japan. So they do not like really hot, dry summers. They like cool, moist summers. You can't grow orientals in Washington, D.C. You can't grow orientals long-term, at least, in St. Louis, places like that. We can do reasonably well with them because we aren't quite as oppressive. But, um, you know, so that's important to remember. And the other thing with orientals is that their soils where they were native, the species were native to are low pH soils or acidic soils. And uh, we don't have many of those here, except when we go up into the boreal forest in northern Minnesota. Uh, so most of our soils are, you know, maybe, maybe if we're lucky, slightly acidic, more to the alkaline side. So yeah. our soils are not really conducive to good long-term success with orientals. Again, I, I look at them kind of like I look at tulips. I love them as container plants because I can modify that pH and that soil easy in the container, much easier in the container than I can in the garden. Or you just look, simply look at them as short-term things. They are in, in all the group, lily groups, Orientals are the ones that are most susceptible to disease issues. And virus, viruses are a problem in certain lilies, and they're particularly a problem with orientals. So you may buy a bulb, 
oriental bulb and fall plant it. The next spring it comes up, it produces a nice tall stem, copious flowers. And the next year after that, shorter, less flowers. Third year, it's just barely showing up out of the ground. That's usually virus that has taken that plant out gradually. So so I'm not saying we shouldn't grow them, but I think it's, it, to, to grow them well, you need to be cognizant of those issues. And actually, I like to grow lilies as a container plant as well, p- partly because then I can move them around wherever I need a little color. Right. <laughs> Let's right. stick that pot in the middle of a border. You so. know, and that's a great point, Mary, because that's true with uh, with a, a number of these other plants we want to talk about here today, whether it's calla lilies or, or pineapple lilies or what have you. The beauty of those in a container is that when they're showing in flower, you can just go and set the pot right into the garden and tie it in with some other permanent combination. It works beautifully to do that. So, yeah. so, so, yeah, there's definitely some advantages in taking that approach. Yeah. Let's take a couple of minutes and talk about martagons, which I just love martagons. Mm-hmm. But they are, they are a little pricey, mm-hmm. um, but they really do well in Minnesota, I think, especially yeah. if you have a little bit of shade. Yes. They have not been widely available in the retail trade for a number of years. That's changing finally now, and we're seeing more and more of them show up. And it was one of our specialties at our nursery for years. Um, uh, But you're right. They're a little pricey. And the reason for that is that partially it's just, you know, supply and demand kind of thing of economics. Uh, but also, they are much slower to propagate and to get a saleable size bulb. So if you if you want to scale, you can propagate lilies by scaling, by breaking off individual scales and treating them properly, and they'll form new little bulbs. You can actually get an, an Asiatic-type lily from scale probably to first flowering within two years. Martagon is easily double that to get a good mm-hmm. size bulb. So they're, they're slower to propagate. They're slower to increase. The trade-off on the other end is that you can let them sit for decades and decades and decades, and they just, they're like a peony. They just keep performing and performing and performing. And so I'm, I'm growing probably mm, 50, 75 different varieties of martigans in my shade garden now. And it's my favorite group of lilies, hands down. It's wonderful. So, yeah. 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 And they have that pretty upside down flower. I mean, they're just, they're just a gorgeous. Yeah. Lily. More that Turk's cap type flower. Most of them with the reflex to petals on them. And yeah. Yeah. So it, it's a great group. And if the gardeners aren't familiar with them, that certainly they should take a look. And, and uh, I think they fall in love with them pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think the one they'd be most likely to find would be the Claude, Claude Shride. Is that, yeah. Yeah. That the purple you know, really pretty plant. Yeah, actually a plant that has its origins here in Minnesota. I remember a lily grower here in Minnesota. So traces back oh. uh, to somebody right here uh, in Rochester, Minnesota. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. So, that's a, so it's native, <laughs> sort of. Sort of, sort of, yeah. 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 Okay, so let's, um, uh, so when you have lilies, do you need to fertilize them much? Do anything like uh, that? You know, <laughs> Yes and no. Uh, so much of that, I guess, depends upon uh, soil prep issues. And, I, you know, I've over the years, I've gotten really to go to being really careful about amending soils uh, at the front end of putting in a garden and then using organic mulches. The lilies are not particularly heavy feeders, but if your soil mm-hmm. conditions are good and you have that more of that organic approach, uh, yeah, they do respond, of course, to fertilizers, you know, and that's a personal gardening, a personal gardening philosophy decision, whether you want to use inorganic fertilizers or organic, they both work, they work in different ways. So you can use a 10, 10, 10 granular fertilizer to feed them. You can also liquid feed them um, and have good results. But uh, so you know, part of it is I think the 
if you do some of that, if you do some supplemental feeding in addition to, you know, being really careful about soil growing conditions, you probably will get a, a greater number of flowers than you would mm. without that. So uh, is it absolutely necessary? No, I don't think so. If you've done a good job on the, back, on the front end of getting the garden ready. Okay. And then one last thing too, as I would, because this is the reason I started growing lilies in pots is that the rabbits sure do love them. Yeah. And, you know, you either have to protect them, you know, with some kind of caging or whatever, or put them in pots. Yeah. Or, you know, and there are some repellents that are really pretty effective. And actually we've gone to using a, a product, a spray on product for rabbits called plant skid. And, uh, it's just it's just a, a in a spray bottle that you just spray on the foliage and uh, no residue. It really works very effectively, and it's not the only uh, repellent that's out there. But plant skid is an example of one. Um, or yeah, short of that, you have to do uh, what you're talking about. You have to cage them or some put some kind of a physical barrier there to keep them away. Right. So yeah, yeah. But the rabbits do love them. There's no question. Oh, boy, do I know that. Yeah. So, Okay, so let's move on to some of the other bulbs, which may or may not actually be bulbs, but like dahlias, yeah. uh, gladiolus, canna lilies. Um, how are those best used in the garden, you know, do you think, in our climate? Because well, they're all ones you have to pull. Every yes, one of those has to yeah, be pulled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I have always struggled with GLAD, and I remember one, GLAD's one time doing a talk when the American Gladiolus Society National Convention was here in Minnesota. I got asked to do a talk on in, integrating gladiolus in the landscape. That was one of the more challenging presentations I've ever put together because it is a little bit challenging to uh, uh, to figure out how to incorporate that particular plant, I think, with, with some others. But uh, uh, but certainly it, it can be done. I think some of these like GLADs, I think most many gardeners look to them more from them from a cut flowers perspective than they do perhaps mm-hmm. as a landscape perspective. And uh, they, of course, are extremely valuable for that. Glass, of course, do grow from what truly grow from what we call a corm. And uh, so we can we can have glads in, in flower in the garden for a long period of time in the summer months by staggering uh, planting dates. So if you, uh, you know, if you plant uh, glads, set of glads every few weeks, every three, four weeks, you can actually have, you can push that length of bloom period of, of glads throughout the whole summer and even up until frost. So, uh, you know, but they all do have to be dug and wintered inside. And, uh, uh, you know, they uh, typically with glads, uh, and I think it's important for gardeners to understand the proper storage temperatures on some of these glads. Glads used like to be pretty on, much on the cool side. So they need to be stored probably for great greatest success in probably the 35 to 40 degree temperature range winter. And some gardeners have that in a, in a garage that may be a heated garage or a cold part of their basement or some of those kind of things. And uh, uh, so that, that the success rate in wintering glads is actually, is, is actually pretty good. And understand the glad that corn that you plant this spring will not be the glad corn that you dig up this fall. They form new little cornlets at the top of the corn. The mother plant dies and goes away, and you harvest the new young ones, and that's what you overwinter for the next year. So it, the corn itself only lives for about a, a year or so on glads. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, so whereas we can contrast that with something like dahlias, which, of course, are, are late summer 
fall bloomers for us uh, that we again they grow from they grow from a from what's called a tuberous root. Um, those again, once we get close to frost time and and should be dug, you know, right before or just right after hard killing frost, those have to be uh, stored much much warmer in the winter time. They need to be in the probably the the uh, oh the forty to sixty degree temperature range so and uh uh, all these structures typically these structures that we harvest in fall and put away for the fall are put into some kind of a of a medium uh you know for example some dahlia growers have all kinds of different ways to store tuberous roots but you can pack them into a cardboard box in layers of uh, sawdust and uh, peat and uh, perlite Uh, there's all kinds of different ways to do them and then those boxes are just stored at the appropriate in a environment that has the appropriate temperature for the winter. And of course, typically with those kind of things that we're overwintering, we like to monitor them as winter goes on. We don't usually have to water them or anything, but occasionally, for example, with a dahlia tuber, uh, we might injure it in the process of harvesting and curing it and getting it ready for winter. Uh, and that, of course, makes that particular plant susceptible to to rot. And so you need to watch those. And if you do have some that are showing signs of rot or other, obviously you want to get them out of that storage container and eliminate them so it doesn't spread to the rest of them in there as well. So so there is some attention that needs to be paid to kind of keeping a little a loose eye on things during that winter months as well. Cannas, of course, are another one that we grow a lot uh, for, for summer effect. And again, uh, they like to be stored in that little higher temperature range, again, probably 40 to 50 in the winter. I have some cannas that I just simply overwinter in pots in my garage, which I hold at 40 degrees, and I have really good luck doing that. So uh, yeah. another favorite of all, summer bulb favorite, a lot of people are calla lilies. And again, primarily for cut flower uh, use. Uh, but again, not winter hardy for us. So we have to dig them when the frost hits them. And those need to be stored probably in the 50, 55 degree range. They're more tropical in origin. So they like a little bit higher temperatures. And and uh, callas are great for cut flowers. Uh, I think I think I just remember is callas as cuts is that you never cut them in bud because they'll never open. You got to you, know, you cut them for cut flowers when they're fully open because um, you cut it in bud. That's where it's it's never going to go beyond that once you make the cut on it. Is that unlike say a, a gladiola? Would you cut that when it's I've cut those when they're like partially open? Yeah, is that- exactly, exactly. And they will continue the the bulb the the rest of the buds on that glad stem will continue to develop and will open, um, they, but. Uh, Callas will not do that. So, <laughs> okay. So, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the other things that Gart, I've always liked, again, primarily for uh, maybe more for the cut flower end are, are Peruvian daffodils, which are South American natives, uh, tube roses, which I, is when I first got into horticulture were only available in white flowers. And uh, now they're available in a wide array of colors, all have wonderful, wonderful fragrance to them. So not only are they beautiful to have in the garden, planted amongst other annuals and perennials, but uh, are great for cutting. And and I think that's true for so many of these summer flowering bulbs uh, that we value them uh, for for summer arrangements uh, as equally as much as we do for having them in the garden. They're really so showy that they they almost you know sort of take over the the look if you would put them in the ground. Mm-hmm. I mean that's I've always grown them just sort of in a corner to make a bouquet with. And you don't have to have a separate cutting garden, you know, unless you're a, 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 a 
avid arranger who's constantly harvesting for arrangements, but most of us are just harvest, are wanting to harvest for occasional bouquets to have in the house when we entertain or, or maybe just because we enjoy having cuts in the house, you can harvest those out of your regular garden and it'll work beautifully for you. Yeah. Well, that's great. So Mike, we're, we're running out of time and I did want to just ask you about particular cultivars of any of these bulbs that you think if someone's kind of just getting into gardening, what, what would you suggest they plant? Well, there's a four day event to go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we ask the tough questions here. (laughs) Well, that's fine. You know, um, uh, I'm going to come back and I'm I'm going to go back to my favorite in the summer foliage bulbs again and 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 maybe go to lilies and I've actually evolved to some of my favorite lilies being some of those Orient pets things like uh, Anastasia uh, is is great Flava is is a great great uh, Orient pet Uh, there's honestly so many that uh, it's hard to say one of the most widely available Orient pets a lot of people think Orient pet lilies are new actually the the original cross was made almost was made 50 years ago by a gentleman by the name of Leslie Woodruff in Oregon and his first one he ever did introduced is a lily called Black Beauty and it's still probably the most widely available of the Orient pets so that is a great great starting point for that group of plants it's a little bit different appearance than modern orient pets but still a phenomenal garden plant and you can buy it in widely available in the retail industries uh, as well so uh you know things like glass and dahlias uh you know there are so many possibilities there it kind of particularly in dahlias it really depends upon the form that you want and there's a wide array of forms available in dahlias from single flowers to colorettes to cactus types to the really large big ones there's great great cultivars in all of them and as i say you know uh, we could talk for forever about that alone so i would just encourage you to try depending upon what form you want there's so many great ones available pick out the colors that work not none of them are going to be that much more challenging than the others to grow but especially the large big ones you have to remember are gonna have to be staked you know, mm-hmm. they have such heavy flower heads, those large dahlias, that if they're not staked, they're going to go down in a summer storm. The beauty of, of the single forms and the colorettes and some of those kinds of types of simpler flower, they're like, it's like peonies. It's like the full double peonies are the ones that are going to go down head, face first into the mud, the singles, and the some of the hybrid peonies are not. Same thing's true with some of the dahlias. So, I, you know, it, there's just so many possibilities that I would encourage gardeners to try. Okay. Well, we're going to have some links in the show notes to places where people might want to get some dahlias or other bulbs and um, other information about uh, about growing bulbs. So, Mike, thanks so much for being here and uh, may have to have you back later. So thanks I would for love to do it. My pleasure to be with you today. Before we go, I just want to give a shout out to my friends at the Minnesota State Horticultural Society who are having a bulb sale online through April 16th. So check out their website at northerngardener.org for some great deals on wonderful bulbs. If you are enjoying Grow It Minnesota, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review over on Apple Podcasts. That really helps me reach more cold climate gardeners. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another show.